Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is a 7 West Media podcast. Modern medicine means people are living longer, but in some cases, that also means they're dying for longer. So how much control can or should someone have over their death? Earlier this year, I did a story on the death of Mike Bielby, who chose to take his own life after suffering from Parkinson's and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. This is a living will and testament of Michael Courtney Bielby. I feel that the uh, my lifespan is approaching an end in various ways. And I wish to exonerate all other people, especially those in my family, for uh, the actions I am personally about to take. His wife, Margot, supported his decision. He actually wanted me to go off shopping and come home and find him dead. And I said, after 51 years of marriage, I'm not going to let you die on your own. She held his hand as he closed his eyes for the last time. But it wasn't over. Major crime was called in to investigate. The law at the moment is, is, is a mess. Victoria has tried to change that. This week, it became the first state in Australia to legalise voluntary assisted dying, or VAD. The Victorian Parliament debated its bill for more than 24 hours in 2017. In the end, with 68 safeguards in place, a conscience vote passed VAD into Victorian law. And on Wednesday, it became available. I spoke to Georgia Commonsoli, a reporter for Seven News Melbourne. She's been following the progress of VAD's introduction. That makes us one of the most conservative schemes of its kind across the world. And that can be argued in both ways, in being that it's almost too safe that no, no one's going to be able to use this scheme at all, but also not safe enough. Right. What are some of those safeguards? It's really anything from your age. You have to be 18 years and older. Um, the patient has to be of sound mind. Um, the way you go about asking for assistance is really quite tricky. You have to be assessed at a number of different stages and the patient has to ask for help on three separate occasions in different forms. So the first time you ask for it, you can ask your GP and it has to be a verbal um, request. And after that, a few days later, it has to be on a separate occasion, you write a written request to a different practitioner. And then after you've done that, you can ask your original GP again in person. Um, and through all that, you also have to be assessed twice. And then after the final request is done, it has to be at least 10 days after the first request before you can access the lethal substance. Wow. So lots of safeguards in place, as you said. I suppose there are mm. lots of international models which vary a lot. Did the Victorian model 
I guess, draw from any of those? The main one that the task force looked at, I think, is the one from Oregon because they've had a scheme that's been in place for the longest, over 20 years, and when they initially introduced their law, their law hasn't changed at all in the 20 years that it's been through government to where it is now. Um, And so I think they looked at how conservative some models were in America and also Europe in terms of what should be allowed and what should be accessed and required to make sure that people aren't slipping through the cracks. And there was, I think, a lot of there was a lot of fear about introducing this into Australia and what that could mean for people, um, practitioners as well as family members who are involved, whether or not that interfered with our legal system. And obviously no one wants to get involved with that and then be come under the umbrella of manslaughter by accident. Mm, Absolutely. So what what are the main criteria? Who can access it? As I said, you have to be 18 years and older. You have to be living in Victoria for at least a year. You have to be given a prognosis of six to 12 months to live. That gets a bit fuzzy around different diseases and different conditions depending on whether or not a practitioner can definitively say you will die in six months' time or in less than six months' time. So, of course, there are some diseases where your quality of life is rubbish, but a practitioner can come in and say, you you probably will die in the next few months, but there's no way that I can definitely say your prognosis is you have six months to live. Right. Then there's also the requests that have to be made and a practitioner can never offer this up to a patient. They have to request it by themselves off their own volition. That is massive. Like you said earlier, Everyone in the medical profession obviously has a big stake in this. What has the position of the AMA been? In Victoria, it's been it's been interesting. They haven't been extremely vocal on this issue. Half of AMA doctors are actually against this. It 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 goes against what they're taught in university and why they go into this profession, which is obviously to do harm, not good, and really save lives. Um, but then there are a lot of doctors who realise that. In terms of some situations, a death can be so horrible and so devastating and so painful that if their only option as a practitioner to help their patient is to help relieve their pain, then they've supported this scheme. And it's so interesting that the Victorian branch of the AMA hasn't been very vocal because the second state that might introduce it, obviously, is Western Australia, and the AMAWA has been opposed to it. One of the things they actually wrote in a submission to the WA government was they're worried about WA becoming a sort of tourist spot for suicide. Um, how You mentioned earlier about you have to live in Victoria for at least a year. Is that right? Is that to sort of, I guess... I guess, try to avoid Mm. that. So that works in with the criteria where you have to have a prognosis between six and 12 months. So obviously, if you've got that prognosis and that makes you fit the bill for this scheme, but you want to move to Victoria to access it, you won't be eligible because you haven't been living here for 12 months. They were quite worried that Victoria would become the go-to state for voluntary assisted dying because we are the first and it is the first time this happened. This has happened in Australia. So, of course, it would be a lot cheaper than, say, go, going overseas to access it elsewhere or for patients in some cases who have refused eating and drinking just to let themselves go by themselves. There's also, um, I think this came about, there was also a bit of research done before the government introduced this bill into the amount of suicide that happened around patients who had a terminal um, prognosis, but 
they had no way to access voluntary assisted dying and they didn't want to die a miserable death in front of their loved ones and in front of their carers. So instead, they they did it in a in in a really awful way in a way that's hidden and no one knew about it. So they ended up being found by loved ones, which is not necessarily the best circumstance to go if this is your only option. It is a very emotional topic. What has the discussion been like in Victoria? Has there been much opposition? There has been a bit of opposition. The majority of protesters are mainly religious. We've had four archbishops across Victoria. So we've had the Archbishop of Melbourne, the one from Ballarat, Sale and Sandhurst, all sign a letter saying that Catholic hospices and Catholic hospitals in their areas are opposed to this law and that if you are seeking treatment from those institutions, you will have to go elsewhere to access voluntary assisted dying, which is really quite phenomenal because the Archbishop is is a pinnacle in Victoria. A lot of people look up to them. So it is a very interesting thing to come out with. On the other hand, other protesters have been handing out pamphlets outside one of our major cancer centres, the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre. Um, and those pamphlets have said things like, your doctors are murderers, um, do not enter Peter McCallum unless you want to be treated by murderers. And some of these people who've been handed these patients are family members of people being treated in this centre or patients themselves on their way to a checkup. So it really is quite disturbing to have that given to you, even if you're not someone who's necessarily on either side of the discussion. It sounds, it actually really reminds me of abortion protesters sort of picketing outside abortion clinics. Yep, completely. When this bill was initially introduced and those protesters started outside the hospital, they've actually introduced a bit of a safe area for patients so they don't get hassled by these protesters. At the end of the day, the whole reason why this bill was introduced was for choice. Um, We've talked about before in our news coverage that in terms of when it really starts which was on Wednesday, there might only be 12 Victorians who take it up in the first year that it's been implemented. But for a lot of people, the whole benefit of this scheme will be that they'll have that choice and that knowledge that if things are really dire and really awful, they can go to it. And a lot of the people who are advocates for this are people who have seen a family member disintegrate and die in a really tragic way and in a way that they just medicine has not been able to help nurses have not been able to help and the family members have not been able to help in any way you mentioned the figure 12 people might take it up that's very specific why that figure that figure came off the implementation i'm fairly certain from canada when they first implemented their voluntary assisted dying bill Um, and that was just in the first year and they also have a conservative model but they project that in Victoria over the next couple years that figure might rise to 200 or 250 people but it will be interesting to see how this goes because it is one of the most conservative models and there are so many safeguards to get to and of course there's only a select number of doctors who will be trained to help with this Um, of course they will be able to roam across the state but In terms of where they're placed or where they're situated, we don't know yet how that will fare in terms of regional Victoria and Melbourne. Um, And of course, if you're in a situation where you're of quite ill health and you can't travel in a car for a couple of hours, you might not be able to come to Melbourne at all. In that situation, 
the pharmacists at the end of that scheme are able to come to you with the substance, but that doesn't mean that a doctor will be able to visit you necessarily for those three separate appointments that you have to request for the assistance. Wow, it gets more and more complicated, doesn't it? It's so complicated. And I suppose when people do get approved for access, how does that work? Are they at hospital? Are they at home? What happens? It's up to the patient's decision. So at the end of the day, the patient has to administer the drugs themselves, which is also interesting. They can do it in a hospice. They can do it in a hospital if they'd like. They can also do it at home They've got pharmacists that will roam all over the state to give you this substance. And the way the substance works is you initially take a drug that will help relax you and will help with any nausea, and then you will take the lethal substance. And when that pharmacist gives it to you or your family, it comes in a locked box. Um, When you take the drugs, you have to take them within a matter of minutes for it to work. And if you don't end up taking it and you end up passing away before you are able to use it, then you have to nominate before your death a member of your family to take the lethal substance back to the Alfred Hospital, which is the main port of call for that substance and where it's made and where it comes from. Wow. Okay. If someone does take the substance, is their family allowed to be with them? It's totally up to them. So you're allowed to have people in the room. You're allowed to be by yourself. Um, The one question that I have is how would that work if someone does it by themselves and how would they be found by a family member? I think in some situations they could organise to have hospital staff or home nurses come and help in that situation, really relax it for the family. Um, It will be quite an emotional time for a lot of people. I know some people would like to pass away at home, but then there's always the issue of what happens afterwards. And that's one thing that hasn't really been discussed because it is up to the individual at the end of the day on how they would like to use the substance. I mean, it's like anything, you you know, something can be planned for. I mean, the law was passed in 2017. That's 18 months of planning, Mm. 68 safeguards. Exactly. But even so, things will pop up that no one could predict, I'm sure. Exactly. And I, I think it'll be a bit of a trial for all the other states. A lot of people have said if this works in Victoria, it won't be a question of if other states implement it. It'll be a question of when. Um, which will be really interesting. Everyone's eyes are definitely on Victoria. It's been huge. We've had, there've been different conferences. Um, You've had people from all walks of life become advocates for it, whether it be retired nurses, different members of government on different, from different parties, um, just really random people coming out of the woodwork to advocate for it. Um, It has been interesting. There's been a lot of push for it. And there's also been, interestingly enough, a really big push to steer away from the word euthanasia. Um, One advocate explained it to me that euthanasia, they said it's most often referred to when you put down a pet or an animal and they don't want to be referred to as an animal. So they much prefer the term voluntary assisted death. Um, And when the bill was introduced, it was called voluntary assisted dying. So... That's another interesting point. And whenever I've mentioned euthanasia or I've been out and I've spoken with someone who's an advocate for it and I've said, oh, euthanasia, they've stopped me straight away to say it's not euthanasia. It's voluntary assisted dying. And what kind of people have you met? Have you met people who have lost people, who took their life before they could access this this kind of um, arrangement or people who want to? Both. I met um, a couple of months ago when I first started reporting on this issue, I met a lovely lady called Jane Morris, who's been an advocate for a couple of years. Her mum had MND and 
she passed away in excruciating circumstances. She had a few days where she was virtually starving and she was thirsty and there was nothing they could do to help her. They administered drugs to help her, but she got to the point where no pain relief helped. When she was diagnosed, she passed away probably about two years after she was diagnosed. So it was really quick, it was really fast, and it really jarred the whole family seeing their mother and seeing the pinnacle of their family in that situation. And then more recently, I was able to interview a retired nurse who only retired because she got a terminal diagnosis for her cancer, which started in her liver and then has since spread to her body. And she's a grandmother and she's got two young kids. And she has openly said to us that when this law comes into effect, which was on Wednesday, she would be one of the first people in Victoria to put up her hand for it and request it. And she said openly, it doesn't, it, that, this doesn't mean that I will definitely use it or it'll be something that I'll do. It just means that I've got the option that I don't have to lie in a bed and perish in front of my kids, in front of my husband, in front of my grandchildren for days on end. I can go gracefully, I can go when I like, and I can do it in a way where I can say goodbye in the way that she would like to. My goodness. I guess for her it's that peace of mind. I know. I, I don't think we could ever fully understand it unless we were in that situation where we were faced with a terminal diagnosis. Mm. And I think a lot of stigma around this issue comes from that because a lot of people just wouldn't understand or they might not necessarily have ever gone through a situation where this would have been a fantastic option. And every time I've spoken to an advocate, they always have a backstory or they always have a connection to someone who would say, yes, this would have been an amazing option to have, not just to be able to use, but mainly for that peace of mind to think, okay, death is an awful thing that's coming up, but I might be able to do it gracefully rather than just have my last moments with my loved ones in a really awful, vulnerable state. I suppose one of the topics that keeps getting brought up in the debate in Western Australia is sort of the the slippery slope, you know, um, in terms of what will this lead to? Um, is it, Will someone make a split-second decision? What are sort of the concerns that are being rolled out over there by people who are against it, even though it is now law? What are the things that they have said and are saying, you know, what are people worried about, I suppose? The major concern is that because it's such a conservative model, there's 68 safeguards, they're worried that in the years to come, um, they might bring that back a bit and make it safe, uh, easier to access. I don't think that'll ever happen. I don't think they'll ever change it. Um, and that's purely just based on the numbers that they get through. And I think innately Victoria can be quite a conservative state with topics like this. And they're very careful for people not to slip through the cracks because at the end of the day, we're talking about someone's death. And it is, at the end of the day, being administered by a drug and being brought on. So technically, it's a death, but it's not necessarily a natural death. And that, of course, comes into all those legalities of if it is administered by someone else or if they weren't of the right frame of mind and they weren't sound of mind, then that could be seen as manslaughter. Um, we have panels of people who will go through different cases and we've also got different assessments that each patient has to undergo to make sure that, yes, they haven't been coerced into this decision and this is something that they've, ma they've made by themselves. They haven't, you know, been told to do it by anyone in their family. It's something that They've come to themselves, they've asked for it themselves, they've asked three separate times, they've had to, they've really been passionate about it enough to write about it, talk to different people, and then they've come to that decision. So 
it is interesting. I don't think they'll ever get rid of the 68 safeguards. They might get rid of one of two, but the way they work, they're quite integrated and it is quite harsh. Like, for example, you have to live in Victoria for 12 months, but you have to have a prognosis of six to 12 months. Those kind of work together. So things like that, I think, will will keep it in the safe zone. It will be interesting to see how many people take it up um, and that no one can really plan for. They can model it off different countries, but at the end of the day, we have different numbers of people who are experiencing different cancers, different diseases, different terminal illnesses. So there's no real way that we can predict how well this will work for our state and how many people will use the system. Can you just really quickly talk us through the approval process so you talk you have to ask three times in three different ways and then it goes to a panel and then you're approved is that right all right so i'll go i've got a list here so the first thing you do is you can ask your doctor for information about voluntary assisted dying and then after after you've asked for that information you ask for a first request and this is when you ask your doctor to help for help to access it. And you tell them, I want to go through the steps and they'll help you through it. After you've made that first request, then you go through an assessment where a doctor will assess you to see if you meet the requirements. And that can be that same doctor or someone else. Then you go through a second assessment where a different doctor will assess you to see if you meet the requirements. After you've done that, then this is when you make your second request. You write a second, it's a written declaration. Um, You complete a form where you're requesting voluntary assisted dying. And then after that, you've been through the two assessments and you've made the two requests. You have your final request, which has to be at least 10 days after the first request. And you have, you, can, you have to ask the first doctor for access to voluntary assisted dying for the final time. After that, you have to appoint a contact person who will return any unused medication to the pharmacy if you die before taking that medication or you decide not to take it. Then a doctor applies for a permit to prescribe the medication to you. So you have to still go through a GP or a specialist to get that prescription, to get that substance from the pharmacy. And then this will allow you to either self-administer the drug or you can get a practitioner to administer it for you if you're not physically able to. Then you receive the medication, which will be delivered to you in a locked box. Um, And then through the assessments, they get handed to a panel to make sure that you're fit. Wow, that's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot. And it's, it's interesting because there are so many different steps. And really, you could be accepted within 10 days to get this done. That's not a lot of time, but there are so many different things that you have to do in that time. Um, I don't know how many cases 10 days will actually be realistic. I guess it depends on the individual situation and how sick or how awful someone's life may be. And has there been any word yet? Like you have met people who've said, as soon as this is legal, I'm going to start the process myself. Has there been any word on anyone starting to do that? Or will you not know until it actually happens? Will you know at all? Well, that's the thing. We might not know at all. Um, A lot of these case studies and people that we've interviewed have come out because they're really passionate for the law to start. But now that the laws start... Death is quite a personal topic and I'm not sure that many people will come out and talk about that process before it happens. We might have family members approach us afterwards who would like to talk about how well it's worked for their personal circumstance. We haven't heard anything in the past 24 hours. Um, Contacts that I've met with, I haven't heard anything from them and I have reached out to a few people but I think it's just one of those things where it started yesterday and 
There might be people who've started to think about it, who've made appointments with their doctors, but we really won't find anything out for at least, I'd say, a month. Yeah, you might get family members coming to say, you know, this was a great experience, like you said, or you might get family members coming out who are outraged. You just never know. Mm. There's so many, you know, emotions about Mm. this topic. It could go either way. Exactly. And there are family members who, at the end of the day, don't want to talk about this topic at all with people that they work with. So that will also be interesting to know whether or not they were involved during the process and whether or not at the end of the process, whether they fully comprehended what was going to happen. Yeah, right. Now, Mm. one other thing the AMA is saying in Western Australia is... Mm -hmm what they really want is an improvement in palliative care. So if this does go ahead, that there will be also a really big emphasis on making sure that end-of-life care is improved and that, you know, people don't use this, use um, voluntary assisted dying as a cheap alternative to palliative care, which sounds horrific, but it's a worry that people have put forward. Has that happened in Victoria? Has there been an emphasis on palliative care? Yeah, and there has been from the start. Premier Daniel Andrews at the time made a pledge for an extra over $60 million for palliative care throughout Victoria. And I think that really helps the system because, as you said, there would be a lot of people in different situations who may not have the money to support a loved one in that type of care but wouldn't be able to give the care that they needed at home. So they would turn to this option and think, oh, maybe this is the right decision to do. Even though in that circumstance, I don't think they'd necessarily be granted the substance. But palliative care is a huge bonus. If you can make that as nice as possible and make hospices across the state as welcoming and as high tech and as state of the art as you can, then it will be interesting to see what rates happen in terms of how many people end up in hospices and how many people end up using voluntary assisted death. And what about rules for doctors? Are any of those safeguards anything to do with, you know, if a doctor finds it morally offensive to perform voluntary assisted dying, will they have to? Most practitioners and most doctors have to be trained especially for voluntary assisted death, they have to know the ins and outs of the safeguards, they have to understand the system, and they have to understand how to properly assess each each individual patient. So it will be interesting to see how many doctors in the next few weeks turn around and say, actually, I'm I'm not comfortable with this, this goes against what I do as a doctor, and other doctors who turn around and say, this is fantastic, and I'm willing to help wherever I can. Absolutely. It's such a fascinating and complex topic. Mm. Well, it matters to every Australian because all of us are going to die. <laughs> Completely. It's, a, it's an awful thought, but it is true. That was Georgia Common Soli from Seven News Melbourne. If this episode has raised any issues for you, Lifeline's 24-7 crisis support and counselling service can be reached at 13 11 14. That's 13 11 14. If someone's life is in danger, call triple zero. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. (laughs) 
That is your news fix for this week. Every week, we'll dig a little deeper and go behind the headlines. Please subscribe if you have a moment and send us your feedback to podcasts at seven.com.au. News Fix is produced by Seven West Media. Supervising producer is John Buck. Our executive producer is Nikki Hamilton. And the director of news and public affairs is Craig McPherson. I'm Cyan Doherty. Thanks for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.